Beloved, good morning and a very warm welcome to you. It is a great privilege and a joy as we gather this Lord's Day, no doubt in a different way, uh, no doubt in a way that would be, have been challenging for most of us. Uh, I'll be quite honest with you, uh, for me this morning uh, here at my home with others that are helping with technology in the background, both at home and at the church, uh, this is different. And I think we need to acknowledge that right at the start. Yet we need to acknowledge as we start that our God is sovereign, that our God is good, that our God is faithful, and that our God is in control of circumstances, not only worldwide, but even in our own country. And the way it's affecting Glen Vista Baptist Church, uh, even this Lord's Day as we gather together. So it's my joy and my privilege, even though it be slightly different, to warmly welcome you. Uh, I, I was thinking this morning, instead of saying welcome to Glen Vista Baptist Church, uh, we probably need to say this morning, welcome to Glen Vista Baptist Church on YouTube, <laughs> wherever you find yourself, whether it be in the comfort of your home, the comfort of your, of your room, whether you're traveling and visiting family and you've got family members worshiping with us uh, around a TV set this morning, around a video screen, a computer screen. What a blessing that is God's people we have of being able to come together and praise God for giving to us able folk who have the, the know about and the means uh, to have made this a possibility for us. So a very warm welcome to all at Glen Vista Baptist Church. Welcome to family and friends who may be signing in this morning as no doubt our live broadcast has been spread uh, around. Uh, and welcome to those who are perhaps this morning visiting with us for the very first time. If this is your first time worshipping with us at Glen Vista Baptist Church, uh, we want to express warm uh, welcome to you. And we would ask you that you would consider, even in an unprecedented time, to join us as we worship. Uh, Lord willing, as we uh, may soon again worship corporately and meet in our building on Lord's Days, but use this opportunity uh, to be with us as we glorify the Lord. As we've been preparing and thinking of all that is happening as we gather this Lord's Day, I think we need to acknowledge at the outset of this worship service that this is an unprecedented time in the world and even in our own country. And that from last Sunday, when our president made this drastic uh, announcement, uh, in this week, uh, life in many ways has changed for many of us. Uh, even the way we meet and the way we do church together has significantly been challenged and been altered. Yet, beloved, I want to remind you at the outset of this worship service that we are faced with a unique opportunity entrusted to us by God to be faithful with the proclamation of the gospel and that we may possibly even reach more than only our own congregation. Praise God for such a unique opportunity. I want to remind you at the outset that our God is sovereignly in control. He is behind this virus. He is the one that has sovereignly permitted it. He is the one that has decreed a time like this in world history. And therefore we pray, therefore we ask rather, that you, our people at Glen Vista Baptist Church, be much in prayer during this time, that God may use this time uh, that has come about by his strange permission as a means for the proclamation of the gospel to spread even wider, that more and more will hear the gospel and come to know Christ Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Just a couple of announcements right at the outset of our worship service this morning, just to put you in the loop. Uh, we recognize at this stage, friends, that communication is of utmost importance. 
Uh, in a sense, I want to apologize up front. You will no doubt receive much more communication from us than, than, than we usually do. Many more emails, many more WhatsApps. Uh, check out YouTube regularly as we send out links, as we may do face-to-face -face, uh, announcements as well. So be on the lookout for each other. If, if ever there is a time that we are to care for one another even more than we are caring already, beloved, now would be that time. Now would be the time to care for our shut-ins. Now would be the time to care for our elderly, those who are particularly at risk as a result of the virus in our country. Now would be the time to use the, the means that God has entrusted to us, social media, WhatsApp, phone calls, emails, um, and to be wise as to how we do that. As much as we believe we have a responsibility as a church to practice social distancing and to work with the government in terms of curbing the, the peak of the virus in our country, we, we nonetheless believe it is crucial that we still meet in smaller groups, two or three or four in a home, regular home visitation, to care for one another and then to be wise, not to hug, not, not to touch, not to kiss to sanitize, to keep our hands clean, to be sure that our environments are clean at all time. Then another important announcement, please watch out our weekly bulletins. Obviously at this time we can't print them and hand them out to you, but it is being sent out, was sent out last night with, along with another of, a number of other important issues, was sent out that you could see it, that you can be part of it. Uh, help us in perhaps printing from the comfort of your own home some copies for those who may not have access to electronic media. We will continue sharing important announcements with the church via WhatsApp, via email and via YouTube. And we will communicate that which is absolutely necessary to keep you in the loop as to where things are going and how things are developing, particularly as it affects our corporate gatherings as a church. Some folk have asked us about the annual general meeting. Uh, it's important at this stage to say that we believe it's too early to actually decide whether we will have to postpone it or continue. We will, however, close to the time, give you more information on that. Then please also note that the church office remains open during this time. Uh, I work from the church personally uh, uh, every day of the week, but for Thursdays, which is my day off, Leslie, our office secretary, works with me on Mondays, so, so do call us during office hours. And then we've opted, as you've seen in our writing as well, the elders have asked very specific, specifically that uh, Peter Swanepoel and Vargis George comes on board and helps us as an eldership to serve the congregation well at this time. Phone any of us, our telephone numbers are in the bulletin, phone any of us at any time that we may care adequately for you as we care for one another together uh, for the glory of our God. And then second to last, I want to just use this opportunity to express special thanks without mentioning specific names to the men that have served so hard in this week to make this live broadcast a possibility. Folk, God is at this time provided able, gifted men that have worked literally round the clock. Uh, I know of some of the men in our church who have in the last three days worked tirelessly, uh, almost uh, throughout the day and the night to make this a possibility. So, uh, some with me in my study here at home as I'm bringing God's word to you. Others even at the church right now, ensuring that we have a live stream at the church in case we have some visitors that arrive. Uh, brothers and sisters, to all of you, uh, the Lord be praised. We thank you for that. And then finally, remember at this time, until further notice, that our evening gathering, our Sunday night Bible study, will be in suspension until further notice. 
Well, I thought of dealing with all the practicalities and the announcements uh, right at the outset of our service. And now I want to call you to turn with me to God's Word as we continue our systematic reading of God's Word. You know, as you worship with us regularly, that we are systematically working through the Psalms. Uh, I'm quite amazed how quick this journey has gone. We find ourselves this morning already in Psalm 133. Won't you turn with me at the outset of our worship service to Psalm 133. It's a short psalm. It only has three verses. I'm going to read it for us. We're going to pray together afterwards and then directly after that come to the preaching of God's word, which is the focus of our worship and the great privilege that we still have the means of being able to communicate God's word to you. Psalm 133 verse 1 to 3, a song of ascents written by King David. I think this psalm is just so appropriate, even in our immediate context. David writes, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Just so far, the reading of God's word. Won't you come before me at the outset of this worship service as we bow before our sovereign king and worship him who is faithful and just. Let's pray together. Our loving God and our heavenly father, what an incredible joy at the outset of this worship service to bow before you, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what an incredible joy as we bow before you to know that you are sovereignly in control, that our God is on the throne and that we can but look to you even this Lord's day at this time with the reminder and the understanding that our God is good, that our God is faithful, that our God is just, that our God is omnipotent, that our God is omniscient, He knows all things, that our God does all things well, and that it is always done for the glory and the honor and the praise of Your precious name. Oh, how very grateful we are that we nonetheless can still corporately meet, even though it is quite different from the way we're used to doing it. Thank you, our Father, that at an unprecedented time, both in world history and in the history of our country, drastic decisions had to be made for the well-being of the flock, for the well-being of the nation, yet that you have nonetheless provided the means by which we can still corporately gather, even though it means that we're worshipping in our different homes, yet at the same time. Oh, how we pray this Lord's Day for the spread of the gospel. Oh, how we pray that you would use the means of technology that this local church may be able to reach many more with the sound of the gospel. Because we know, as per Romans 10, without the hearing of the word, uh, there can be no true conversion. Therefore, in your sovereign decree, you have so declared that by the foolishness of preaching, many will be saved. We ask therefore, O oh Father, as we gather together, that even today you will use the proclamation of your word for the glory of your name, that Christ Jesus may be glorified and that the saints may be fed and may be fed well, that our, the desires of our heart will be met through the preaching of the scriptures. 
We pray for loved ones in our own midst who are struggling as a result of the impact of the coronavirus and, and the radical life changes it has brought, not only to life, but even to corporate worship. We pray for those in our church who may not necessarily have the means uh, to be hearing uh, the gospel this morning as a lack of technology. We ask, oh God, that you would make us faithful to care for those very particularly as well. We pray it in, in it all that the name of Christ Jesus may be glorified. Oh, and how we pray for the preservation of our unity. We've read a psalm that speaks on unity. It's like the precious oil on the head uh, running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And there your word teaches us where there is unity. The Lord has commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. We ask, O oh God, that we would act in accordance with our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus refers to the inter-Trinitarian unity between Father, Son, and Spirit, and, and prays that then for His beloved church, that they may be one as we are one. Oh Lord, as much as we are diverse and, and, and moved into various locations at this time because of immediate circumstances in our country, won't you preserve our unity? And keep us together, close-knit as a family that will be preserved for the glory of God, that the gospel may go forth from this community and that many will come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We ask even as we come to the preaching of your word, that, that you would use your word to feed us. That you would use your word for the exaltation of Christ's name. That you will use your word to confront us in our sinfulness where there is sin that we may repent that you will use your word as a means of encouragement, our Father, that those who need to be encouraged even this day will be encouraged by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the Scriptures. We ask that as we continue, look for measures to be put in place to ensure that the unity of the church is preserved in a difficult time in, in, in the life of, of, of the church of Jesus Christ, even nationwide, worldwide, worldwide that you would grant wisdom to the leaders of your church that those who have been entrusted across the world with, with leading the church of Jesus Christ may make decisions that will be in accordance with our obligation to submit to the state and obey the state as per Romans 13, but that will nonetheless also obey the command in terms of our local gatherings. And, and, and there's a fine balance, O oh Lord, how to find that has been incredibly difficult. So please be gracious to us. We pray now wherever your people find themselves, spread out over the country, even where the, the gospel is proclaimed nationwide. Oh God, speak to your people this morning. Use the proclamation of the scriptures that Christ Jesus may be glorified and honored, that he and he alone may receive the praises. Speak to us now. Bless the preaching of your word, we pray. We pray it with thanksgiving in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you then at the outset that you would turn with me in God's word. Beloved, for those who are worshiping with us regularly, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis at this point in time. Uh, last Lord's Day, we were in Genesis chapter 3, considered the first seven verses of what we have before us. And this morning, I want to continue and I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We're also going to be turning to John chapter 7. So perhaps you want to get to both those texts before you now. Both Genesis 3 
and John chapter 7 as I want to uh, bring John 7 into the picture this morning as we consider uh, the, the person and the work of the second Adam. I recognize you don't have the PowerPoint as per usual that you can see the slides uh, before you. Therefore, there would be need for me perhaps just to stress some of the points very clearly. I've therefore entitled this morning's message, A Look at the Person and Work of the Second Adam. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 to 13 and then John chapter 7 verses 25 uh, to 46. Turn with me therefore firstly in God's word this morning to Genesis chapter 3 as we pick up at verse 8. And the word of the Lord says, By the pen of Moses under the divine inspiration of the Spirit in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now come with me to the New Testament as we consider uh, John chapter 7. I, I recognize as I read this text, you may at first not quite see why I'm going to John 7. Uh, I have no doubt as we come to the preaching of God's word that that will become clearer. John chapter 7 and we're picking up at verse 25 right through to verse 46. Note very particularly that the, the text we're about to read now really is asking the question, who is the Christ? And that beloved is what ties into our overall theme this morning as we ask the question, who is the Christ? Who is the second Adam that came to undo the effects of the sin of the first Adam? Last Lord's Day, we saw how the first Adam sinned and transgressed against the law of the Lord and the devastating consequences that comes to all of humanity because of Adam's sin. Now notice in John 7 that we have a text before us that actually asks the question, so who is this Christ? John 7, we're picking up at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and, and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. 
And so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who has sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and then teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried. He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division amongst the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers then answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Just so far, the reading of God's word. Won't you pray with me again that we ask that God through his Holy Spirit will sanction his blessing on heart, mind and ear that we may truly hear the gospel of Christ. Father, that is our very sincere prayer. We come this morning to a very important matter as we seek to interject in the narrative of Genesis where we see Adam and Eve falling from grace, to interject before we proceed again next Lord's Day with the remainder of that text, a comparison between the work of the first Adam and the work of the second Adam. And how crucial it is, as we considered last Lord's Day, the devastating effects of the work of the first Adam this morning to be encouraged by the scriptures at the tremendous work of the second Adam, Christ Jesus, our Savior, who came to ransom a sinful people from the destructive effects of sin and from our ruin and misery that came about as a result of Adam's sin. Now we pray, Holy Spirit of God, Wherever we find ourselves under the preaching of the word, even as you use the foolishness of preaching to save some, 
O God, work in our midst for the glory of your, t- of your name. May Christ Jesus be exalted and praised. We ask this with thanksgiving in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Once again, beloved, I've entitled this message as we find ourselves both in Genesis 3 and in John 7, a look at the person and the work of the second Adam. Now, in our previous exposition, last Lord's Day, from Genesis 2.25, right through to Genesis 3 verse 7, you may remember that we looked at the disastrous consequences of Adam's disobedience. We saw the first Adam falling from grace. Yet prior to Adam's disobedience, all was in perfect harmony with the very glory of God. Seven days of creation and all was done. All was perfect. The glory of God seen in unparalleled splendor, majestic brightness and overall grandeur. Man now had a companion for himself, one after the very likeness of God, and in so many ways, so much like Adam himself. A companion in whom Adam could delight, one with whom he could now share the very beauty and the brilliance of all that God has made. All things in heaven and on earth now testified to the goodness and the greatness of God. Everything Adam and Eve could see was the irrefutable proof of the power and the honor of God. The earth and all that God had made was filled of God's praise. God's invisible qualities, as Romans 1 says, His eternal power and His divine nature were clearly seen and could be understood quite simply by that which God had made. And therefore, at the outset, in Genesis 3, and even now in 2020, the first man and the woman on planet Earth, and you and I, this Lord's Day on planet Earth, are utterly without excuse. And even though the serpent was whispering in Eve's ear, telling her lies, The whole of creation, by God's grand design, was testifying to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, Eve found herself everywhere surrounded by the very love of God, even though the crafty serpent was tempting Eve. At this stage, before the fall, Adam and Eve had listened to God only. There were no other voices. There were no other influences. Up until this point, God had provided everything Adam and Eve had needed. And now in the garden, we find ourselves where a test of their loyalty to God arises. Beloved, their conscious decision to disobey God has disastrous consequences on Adam and Eve, on Adam and Eve's relationship with God, and on all who come from their seed, but also on all of creation. Destruction, disaster, and death enters upon the disobedience of the first man and his wife. 
Therefore, as, as we gather around the scriptures, in order for us to have a better comprehension of the very contrast the scriptures paint between the first and the second Adam, the first Adam being Adam in the garden, the second Adam being Christ Jesus, in order to understand that contrast in terms of their works and their persons, and beloved, in order for us to understand the extent of our depravity in the first Adam, we need to have a comprehension of the person and the works of the second Adam. To understand in light of that, the very greatness of our salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. As much as we have read Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 to 13, I won't be doing an exposition of that text today. But I will be focusing on John chapter 7, interjecting that between verse 7 and verse 8, laying a foundation, bringing a comparison between the works of the first and the second Adam, so that, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, when we pick up at verse 8 here in Genesis 3, we have together a foundational understanding of the works of the second Adam who came to undo the works of the first. I want you with me. To consider, therefore, as we really go wide and deep in the scriptures, some of the most fundamentally important truths the Bible teaches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We will consider that the Lord Jesus Christ has three offices and that Christ Jesus has two natures. And then we will learn over and above that, that there is but one person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I want to present to you as a matter of overview some of the most fundamental truths which make Christianity distinct in terms of its claims concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that the Spirit of God will enable us to grasp these truths and that we will know and that we will believe why we believe these things. Now the passage that we've read from John's Gospel asks the question, who is the Christ? Again, I don't plan on doing a verse-by-verse exposition of John 7. I do, though, plan on answering the question which is presented before us in John 7. And, beloved, this is the question. We are presented as we interject that into Genesis 3. The question is this. Who is the Christ? Who is this second Adam? What has the second Adam done? How is the second Adam contrasted to the first Adam? How is the second Adam by far superior to the first Adam? And the answering of that question, I believe, will serve us as a congregation well as we proceed verse by verse through the pages of Genesis, understanding what our sovereign God has revealed. Well, that then brings me to the exposition of the text. And I want to consider with you three fundamental points that we are to remember about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first of those essential points that I present you from the scriptures is this. Jesus Christ as the second Adam occupies three essential offices. Let's go back to the first Adam. Let's go back to our text in Genesis 3. Even as we have the background before us, as we saw last Lord's Day, as the first Adam failed miserably 
As Adam is our father and Eve is our mother, transgressed the law of the Lord. Prior to that transgression, as God by sovereign design uh, gives unto Adam specific responsibilities within the garden to not only name the animals and care for it and to care for plant life and to care for all of creation, God also prior to the fall appoints Adam in the garden of Eden as a prophet, a priest and a king. Let me explain. Adam was a prophet. He had a clear mind. Adam was a priest. He had a pure heart. And Adam was a king. He had a right will. If that doesn't yet make sense, keep on listening. Firstly, Adam was a prophet in the sense that as Adam looked out over all creation, Adam had the ability to understand it. You see, Adam knew the truth about what God had done. He walked with the very God who had made this world that he saw around him. He understood the truth about the creatures, about the plants, and about the way that the world operates. He was even under God, given the supreme responsibility of naming the plants and naming the animals. And the text you may remember says to us, and whatever Adam named them, that was its name. You see, Adam as prophet could think God's thoughts after him. His mind was clear and, and if anyone had to ask Adam, he would have been able every time to convey to them accurately God's truth. For Adam had not yet sinned. And beloved, in that sense, Adam was a prophet. Secondly, Adam did not only have a clear mind in that he could think the faults of God after God, Adam also had a pure heart. You see, everything Adam did prior to the fall uh, was an act of pure worship unto the God who had made all that Adam could see. You see, the whole of that man's being was taken up with God. Adam approached God. There was no barrier between God and Adam. Adam prayed to God. Adam enjoyed God. Everything Adam did, Adam did for God. The whole of Adam's life before the fall was God word. And in that sense, Adam was a priest. Thirdly, there was no higher creature on this planet other than Adam. And walking with God as Adam understood, Adam ruled the universe. And it's in that sense that we see that Adam was a king. So in Adam you see a prophet, a priest, and a king. But Adam fell. And you never again, until the appearing of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, Never until then do you see these officers simultaneously operating in one man. Adam was prophet, priest, and king prior to the fall. 
but the fall disrupted that relationship within Adam. And it's only until the appearing of Jesus that we see this happening again. Therefore, in summary, Adam, when sinless, was a prophet, a priest, and a king unto all of God's creation. Now, now, now here's a fact that needs to be observed. The three offices of office, uh, the three offices of uh, of the of the of this priestly nature, were were prominent in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. But but all three were never found in one person during the Old Testament period until the appearing of Christ. Subsequent to Adam, in other words, it is only the Lord Jesus Christ that exercises all three of these offices in one person. So, so here then is fundamental truth number one. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, exercises all three these offices. And I'm going to invite you to come with me as we do a broad sweep throughout the scriptures as I want to show you firstly how Jesus exercises as prophet, priest and king on earth and then secondly how Jesus operates as prophet, priest and king even in heaven. Let's consider how that happened during his earthly ministry. As prophet, Jesus spoke through all the prophets and as prophet, Jesus came himself as, as God's final revelation to men. 1 Peter 10, sorry, 1 Peter 1 verse 10 to 12 and Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 2. Let's consider 1 Peter 1 verse 10 to 12. Peter writes concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, as prophet on earth, Jesus spoke through his appointed prophets. In Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2, we have the very same truth uh, uh, brought across clearly again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. I think clearer than that, beloved, uh, we can't find it. So, so that's how Jesus functioned as prophet whilst on earth. Now, now let's see how he functioned as priest during his earthly ministry. Well, this is profound. As priest, he made the one and final and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. Hebrews 10, verse 14. Come with me to Hebrews 9, verse 11. The author of the book of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9 verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. A priest, the very Son of God, making a once-off priestly sacrifice, never to be repeated again. Then consider with me how Jesus operated as king during his earthly ministry. And here is how it worked. As king, he held together the world that he had made and thus often displayed his kingship. We read about that, for example, in Colossians 1.17 and even in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. Uh, come with me as we read one of those references, Colossians 1 verse 17. In Colossians 1, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, and he, he's referring to Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think even of what John writes, nothing that was made was not made without him. So as king, he is the one that holds all things together, even during his earthly ministry. Now, let's consider how these three officers are showing themselves forth in and through Christ, even in his exalted position at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Well, let's consider his, pre, his, his office as prophet. Now in heaven, the scriptures teach us that as prophet, he sends his spirit to lead his people into the truth. We find that in John 16, verse 7 and verse 13, which reads as follows. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the very things that are to come. You see, you see there we have a Christ as prophet sending his spirit to lead his people in truth even now during his ministry in heaven. How does he operate as priest at the right hand of God the Father in heaven? Well, here it is. The scriptures teach us abundantly that as priest, he applies the benefits of his sacrifice to his people and as priest, he intercedes for us. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 to 10 and Hebrews 7 verse 25. Let's read Hebrews 7 verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, what a profound thought that in his priestly office, even at the right hand of God the Father, God the Son is interceding for his bride as a demonstration and a declaration of his great love for her. Know therefore this morning. That as much as the first Adam through his own sin disrupted everything that God had ordained, the second Adam comes to restore that. And even as the second Adam intercedes for you as his bride, even now, 
It is a demonstration that in spite of Adam's failure, Jesus Christ loves his people. What a warm encouragement for our hearts, even at a time like this in our own country. How then does he operate as king from his heavenly rule? Well, as king, the scriptures teach us that he, Jesus Christ, exercises all authority in heaven and on earth, subduing sinners to himself, ruling and defending his church and hastening the end when all his enemies will be put down. And there are many references. Let, let, let me give them to you. Uh, perhaps again, just to say, if you miss some of these, don't forget that the transcript is sent out via email as well. And, and you can get that. Well, well, that truth is taught in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. John 14, verse 7 to 11. Ephesians 4, verse 15. John 10, 27 to 20. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. Uh, let's read one of them. Let's see how as king he exercises his authority from his heavenly throne. We read in Matthew 28 verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, listen carefully now, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, now watch how he has dictated his kingly rule even to the church. He says to the church, you go, go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Perhaps one more reference to see his kingly rule. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five, The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. And there I trust you can clearly see that the Lord Jesus reigning as prophet, priest and king during his earthly ministry. But even now in his exalted position at the right hand of God the Father. That brings me to fundamental truth number two. And the second truth I want you to consider as we compare the work of the first Adam to the work of the second Adam is that as much as Jesus occupies three offices, the consistent witness and teaching of the Bible is that Christ, however, exists in two natures. And the first of those natures that we are to consider is that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. That has the implication and the profound reality, beloved, that his life did not begin when he was born. In John 8 verse 58, Jesus makes a statement that caused the Pharisees to want to kill him. He says this, And Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen now, before Abram was, I am. Now listen to the response of the Pharisees in verse 58. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is God is testified to by the scriptures in that the scriptures give unto him divine titles. Isaiah 40 verse 3, John 1 verse 19 to 34, Hebrews 1 verse 8, 1 John 5 verse 20. Uh, listen what the prophet Isaiah prophesied even before the coming of the Messiah. Here is one of the divine titles that he gives unto Christ that reminds us <coughs> that Christ is God. Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now it's important that you note there in the text that Lord is spelled capital L-O-R-D. In other words, folk, this means in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh which we have seen very clearly thus far in the book of Genesis, is, is the covenant God, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant name of our God. While Isaiah prophesies even before the coming of the Christ, that the Christ is Yahweh. And then he says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There he uses the term Elohim again. In, in 1 John 5 verse 20, we see that this divine title is given to our Lord. John writes, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen now, He is the true God and eternal life. Can, can you hear the divine title given to God? Jesus Christ, John writes, in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the true God Jesus is eternal life. The scriptures are unequivocally clear about that. Note also that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God because the Lord Jesus Christ is not only given divine titles, he is also given divine attributes. Isaiah 44 verse 6 and Revelation 22 13. Come with me as we read Revelation 22, 13. Here's the divine attribute that is given to the second Adam. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is given that divine attribute. The second Adam is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, Again, the second Adam is given this divine attribute. Thus says the Lord, note again, uh, capital L-O-R-D, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I've no doubt that the picture is becoming very clear to you that the Lord Jesus Christ in his first nature as God even as man, he was God. How, how do we know that further? Well, well we know that in his, in his earthly nature, he was God because he, did, he, he had done the very works of God. So he does divine works. John 1 verse 3, John 1 verse 10, Colossians 1 verse 16 and 17. Let's read those. In John 1 verse 3, we have this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, here we see Jesus doing the very works of God. Nothing was made that was not made through Jesus. Jesus is God. 
In Colossians 1 verse 16 and 17 we see, For by him, and that him by the way is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and, and for our study, this Lord's Day, the second Adam. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And watch now. And in him all things hold together. We further know that in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. Because he has ascribed divine worship. Hebrews 1, 8, John 20, verse 26 to 29. And then even Revelation 5. In Hebrews 1.8 we read, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Now watch this. God the Father is saying of the Son, your throne, O God. Can you, see when, can you see he's given divine worship? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. In John 20, verse 26 to 29, we have... Even one of our Lord's disciples ascribing divine worship to him. It was after the resurrection, and this is a post-resurrection appearance of which John speaks here. Listen how divine worship is ascribed to our Lord. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood amongst them. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, now listen how Thomas responds by ascribing divine worship to the very son of God, the son of man in his earthly post-resurrection appearance. This is Thomas's worshipful response brought about by God. But here's his response and Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. Let's then consider the second nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is man. Fully God, fully man. And here's a significantly important truth that must solemnly be understood as we gather. Jesus came, Jesus came to the earth and he became man without ceasing to be God. Fully God, clothed in manhood. John 1 verse 1 to 3, John 1 verse 14, uh, 1 John 1 verse 1 to 3, quite easy to remember. Well, let's read John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning, you know it well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In 1 John, the Apostle writes again in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. 
and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that we also now proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, so, so there's the first cardinal truth. And let me state we find today much heresy being proclaimed and this truth being twisted where many today will proclaim that when he became man, he lost his divinity. Folk, that is a lie that is not in accordance with the scripture. He became man without ceasing to be God. Secondly, as part of his human nature, we see the scriptures abundantly testifying to the fact that he was born of a human mother. Luke chapter 2, Galatians 4. In Luke 2, we have this account. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, the her here, you know, is Mary. The time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, now subsequent to being born of a human mother, the, the, the scriptures testify that Jesus was revealed in human form. Listen carefully. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 to 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. In Romans 8 verse 3 we have this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I mean, that is just so clear that he was revealed unto us in human form by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As man, Jesus had a body, he had a soul, he had a will, and he had affections. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17, Matthew 26, verse 38 to, 8, uh, to, verse 38 to 39 Read with me Hebrews 2 verse 14 to 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, and it's referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and again for our study, referring to the second Adam who came to undo the works of the first Adam, the miserable failures of the first Adam. Watch now. Since therefore he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Listen carefully now. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So as man, he had to be made like us in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people, to deal with the wrath of God and absorb the wrath of God at the cross of Calvary. Why was there wrath? Well, precisely, beloved, because of what we're learning in Genesis 3. The wrath of God comes because of Adam's disobedience to the covenant stipulations that God made with Adam. And that covenant stipulation is seen in Genesis 2.16. 
You shall not eat of the tree, for surely the day you eat of it, Adam, that day you will die. That's why Jesus, the second Adam, had to be made flesh, that in all respects he could be like us, so that he could be the perfect propitiation for the sins of his own people. Here's an interesting fact about Jesus as man. The scriptures teach us that he knew tiredness, he knew thirst, he even knew tears. In John chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, and even in John eleven thirty-five, we read the following. John 4, verse 6 to 7, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus wearied, can you hear there? He was tired, he knows tiredness. Jesus wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And watch now, Jesus is not only weary, but Jesus is thirsty. And he said unto her, give me a drink. Jesus got tired. Jesus became thirsty. And then quickly turn with me to John 11 verse 35 to what is known to be the shortest verse in scripture. John eleven thirty-five will again prove the humanity of our God. And this is how it read. Jesus wept. Jesus had affections. Jesus had tears. Jesus, the very Son of God, is also Jesus the man. And then here's a truth that, to be quite honest with you, often blows my mind as I consider its implications. Jesus did not cease being man after his resurrection. Jesus did not cease being man even in his ascension. Jesus did not cease being man even in his appearance right now at the, at the, <coughs> excuse me, at the very right hand of God the Father. Jesus remains man after his resurrection. And we read it this way in Luke 24, verse 36 to 43, and even in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. In Acts 1.11 we read and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then along with that, beloved, he is man today and he will be man forever. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 we read, For there is one God, and, then, and there is one mediator between God and men. Listen now. The man, Christ Jesus. Fully God, fully man, whilst appearing on earth in human flesh. Fully God, fully man, even now at the right hand of God the Father. Well, that brings me to the final truth that I want you to consider as we compare the distinct natures of the first Adam, which we're currently seeing in Genesis. I'm not saying too much about the first Adam because Genesis is unfolding that. But we're saying much today about the character, the work and the person of the second Adam who has come to undo the works of the first Adam. Here's fundamental truth. Number three. The final essential element concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ 
is that he exists in one person. Folk, here's a truth that cannot be comprehended aside from faith. This can only be understood by divine revelation. The carnal mind does not comprehend the things of the spirit. For in carnality we are dead to the things of the spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, For it is in death that we were brought forth. A resurrection took place as we were ensnared by death. This truth can only be understood by those who have been made alive by the spirit of God. And here's the truth. In his two natures, that of God and that of man, Jesus exists in one person. Christ's two natures are entirely distinct. They don't mix, they don't merge, they don't reduce, they don't dissolve, they don't change, they don't run into each other. But, but here's what you need to grasp. Do not for one moment think that because he was God, that he therefore was not fully man. Also, beloved, don't make the error of thinking that because he was man, that the fullness of God could not dwell in his manhood. No. Here is the mystery of the incarnation as the Son of God takes on flesh and tabernacles amongst us. Or, or as the original literary says, and he pitched his tent amongst us. Uh, here is the truth in his humanity. All of the fullness of God indwelt him. A mystery that the human mind cannot fully fathom. Yet a truth that the scriptures are abundantly clear on. There are not Christs. There is only one Christ. He is but one person and has always spoken of such as a consistent testimony and witness by the revealed will of God through the pages of Scripture. And it's precisely because of that truth that statements like Acts 20 verse 28 are possible. In Acts 20 verse 28 we read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Let me explain what we're seeing here. We're seeing here that the person who has purchased the church is God. How did this person, capital P, purchase the church? Well, the text tells us. With blood, with his own blood. This, the blood of the living son of God. For the Old Testament law teaches us in Leviticus without the shedding of blood, there cannot be any remission of sin. And here's the profound reality. As we consider that sin comes by one man, the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, as, as Adam spoils and disrupts the created order by his disobedience unto God, even as we saw last Lord's Day as our federal head, even though Earth, uh, Eve took the first fruit, we see it is Adam himself that is held responsible by God for this travesty against the word of God. As Adam, as our federal head, brings upon us sin and ruin and misery and destruction, it is he who is both Christ, he, is he who is both God and man in one person with two natures, that through his blood 
redeems a people unto himself for the glory of God. Therefore, the person who purchased the church is both God and man. And because he is but one person in two natures, we may in the same breath speak of him as God and as of shedding human blood. Romans 9.5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Can you see what Paul is emphasizing here? He is emphasizing the very fact that this one Christ is the God who came in flesh to reveal the very Godhood of God. Beloved, there we are presented with one great singular truth on which all of Christianity hinges. And yet, a truth which causes men to stumble. I need you to see that unless we believe and teach these truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot claim to be a Christian church. As we have clearly seen that the Lord Jesus Christ occupies three offices, it suffices to say that any church that does not exemplify and honor all three of those offices of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot claim to be a Christian church. How do we as Glen Vista Baptist practically apply and live in honor of the fact that Christ is fully God, fully man, that Christ has come as prophet, priest, and king to undo the effects of the first Adam, that he as second Adam rules and reigns as prophet, priest, and king. How can Glen Vista Baptist Church honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I would make a couple of practical uh, suggestions. Firstly, we honor Christ as our prophet who has redeemed us from the fall and the destructive nature of the first Adam when the, when the church family faithfully preaches his written and revealed word. Beloved, a church that does not faithfully preach the word of God is a church that is deprived of the prophetic ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, such a place cannot claim to be a Christian church. Jesus calls that a synagogue of Satan. That's how we practically honor Jesus as prophet. When the word of God is opened and the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it is only when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed that the church dares say, thus saith the Lord. And when the church is able to say, thus saith the Lord, by the faithful proclamation of the gospel, then we know that as prophet, he is active in our midst. Secondly, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ by exalting his priestly office. How do we do that? While in the Old Testament, the priests served the people of God by being their representative before God. The priestly office of Christ is held up high as the church then exercises the two sacraments which the Lord Jesus gave unto us. Beloved, it's in the practice of the Lord's Supper. It's in the practice of baptism that this is so clearly seen. 
Now we recognize we may need to give thought to that very particularly at this stage where we find ourselves as the church worldwide uh, is is not able to meet corporately and not knowing how long that is going to be. The exaltation of our Lord in his priestly office is something that the leadership of the church will have to give careful thought to as we consider the Lord's Supper and as we consider baptism at this time. Oh, pray with us that this season may be a short-lived season for the sake of the glory of God as we see the priestly office of Jesus Christ through the observance of the sacraments. And then finally, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ by exalting his kingly office when the church exercises his rule and cares for its people both by means of teaching and encouragement, but listen carefully, also by means of church discipline. Folk, both as we care for God's people by teaching and that's why in our minds it has been uh, the, 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 the absolutely non-negotiable that even at a time where we can't corporately meet, we've gone to extra lengths and many have served us faithfully into the wee hours of the night to ensure that this morning you can still, even in the comfort of your home, receive the preaching of God's word. For us, that is non-negotiable. Even if all other activities need to cease for a season, the one thing that may not cease is the preaching of God's word because it is in the preaching of God's word that his kingly, offices, uh, his kingly office is exercised and seen in the church. But, but recognize then also that it is in church discipline as a loving demonstration of God's grace to restore fallen sinners unto himself. Even in church discipline, when a body exercises that faithfully, the kingly rule of Christ is seen. So then, in conclusion, this is the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. This is the truth of the gospel of the second Adam who came to undo the works of the first Adam. One God in three persons with three distinct offices, two distinct natures, yet one person. Can this then be the Christ? As the question is asked in that passage in John 7 that we read at the beginning. And our answer is an emphatic yes. Yes, indeed, this is the Christ. This is he who has come to undo the works of the first Adam in him and in him alone. The second Adam is life, life everlasting for those who believe. In the first Adam comes death. In the second Adam comes life. From innocence to guilt. From joy to gloom, from intimacy to separation, from fearlessness to fear, from freedom to bondage, all because our forefather Adam failed. Disregarded the covenant stipulations of God in the Garden of Eden, turned his back on God, so to speak, and in Adam all die. Beloved, I said it last Lord's Day and it needs to be said this morning again. The full extent of our fall in Adam can only be properly understood when we understand the full extent and the length that God the Father had to go to to undo the effects of the fall of our forefather Adam. It cost the second Adam his life 
to undo the effects of the first Adam. Jesus had to be crucified on a cruel Roman cross. A man who had no sin, taking upon him the sin, the wrath of God, drinking to its last drop the very bitter gall of God's wrath for the sake of his beloved church, all this because of the failure of the first Adam in the garden. It took the work of the second Adam to bring home to you and me the complete extent of our downfall in the first Adam. What will you do, dear friend? Will you believe? Or will you, like we've even read in John 7, will you laugh? Will you mock? Will you brush this off as utter nonsense? Will you, like the world, be more concerned about, about the coronavirus than you are concerned about the destruction of your soul? Did Jesus not warn us pertinently? Fear not him who can only destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Let me state unequivocally this morning, if you are more concerned about the coronavirus and the effect it may have on your three scores and ten on this earth, and if you're not concerned about the eternal destruction of your soul, beloved, then we need to say it this morning lovingly. We are in fear for you. For you are fearing that which is temporal. And they're not fearing that which is eternal. If you don't know Christ, the second Adam, personally, as your Lord and your Savior this morning, then let me say, then you need to fear the coronavirus because if the coronavirus takes your life and you don't know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the ultimate fear is the judgment stool of Christ before which you will appear. And unto you who have made temporal things your primary concern, unto you he will say, go away from me, you wicked servant, for I have not known you. Where do you find yourself this morning? Let me say, you can't find yourself somewhere in between the first Adam and the second Adam. That doesn't work. You're either completely in the first Adam, caught in the trespasses and sin that leads to death, or you are completely in the second Adam who has rescued you from the bondage of sin, brought you out of the kingdom of darkness through his marvelous light into the kingdom of light. You are either in Adam or you are in Jesus Christ. Where are you this Lord's day? Why don't you prayerfully consider your own stance in light of the holiness of a God who had to send his one and only son as second Adam to undo the effects of the fall of the first Adam. And remember, whichever way you go in terms of deciding between the first Adam and the second Adam has eternal significant consequences therefore beloved as we end off turn to him christ jesus the second adam amen let us pray together father when we consider the vast ramifications of sin 
its destruction, its downfall, the ruin and the misery that it brings, then to a large extent we are to be ashamed at how much we are making of a little virus that has put the world in a standstill. Yet we believe there are unique opportunities for the church and for the gospel at this time. What a powerful reminder of the power of our God. That our God who is powerfully in control of a little virus that has brought the entire world to fear and panic. Oh, how will it be on judgment day when this same God causes his judgment to fall upon a wicked people who are rejecting Christ and the gospel. That, O oh God, should bring utter fear to our hearts. That, O oh God, should bring us to our knees. As much as we have the privilege of considering the works of the first Adam in Genesis, as we continue seeing that even more, if it be your will, Lord willing, next Sunday, we thank you for the privilege of having been able to consider the works of the second Adam who has come to undo the works of the first and to bring reconciliation between God and man. For in this is love that Christ sought us while we were still sinners. This is perfect love that drives away fear. Therefore, the great joy, our Father, is that for those of us who are in you, we need not fear a virus that's going around. We recognize we have a part to play. We have a role. We are to assist where we can, but we are not to fear and we are not to cause panic. Oh, how we thank you for Christ Jesus, the second Adam, that provides life and life everlasting to all who trust in him. For this, oh God, we thank and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Beloved friends, as we come to the end of our service, thank you for being with us. Thank you for making extra arrangements to be able to sign in. Uh, for those of you who are not able to listen to the live clip, uh, we will directly after this uh, uh, live broadcast be sending you out the voice note of the entire service. You'll be able to worship again in the privacy of your own homes by unfortunately only getting the voice and not the, not the visual as well. But we trust that God will use that uh, for his glory and his benefit. Before we have the spoken benediction and then bring the service to an end and lock off, uh, do know that we're praying for you at this time. Please make every effort that we be in regular contact as much as we possibly can. Again, a reminder that we'll do everything in our power from the church's perspective, from the leadership perspective, to care for you to the best of our ability. But may I stress, we cannot know what you're facing or what needs you have unless you let us know. Let us know, for it is our greatest joy and our privilege to serve you to the best of our ability. Please look after yourselves. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be much in prayer. Be much in his word. Till we even meet this way again, and we will communicate with you, or till that wonderful day that we can meet corporately again, pray for the hastening of that day that God may be gracious to us. 
Won't you therefore, as we bring this service to an end, where you are in your living room, wherever you find yourself at this time, receive the doxology as we bow before Christ Jesus. And as I remind you of those words, we often sing together as we take hands in the sanctuary, even now as you hear it spoken, and as we bring praises unto God from the book of Jude, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, both now and forevermore. Amen. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. The Lord bless you. Look after yourselves. God bless.